Hey everyone, you're listening to Tobin Tuesdays brought to you by the Manitoban here on 101.5 UMFM. Today is October 23rd, 2018, and I'm your host, Joe Gonzalez. On today's episode, we have a few interviews, one with Andrew Swanson, Open Fest co-organizer, and a couple members from the Winnipeg Band Royal Canoe. We also have an interview with Kim Tallbear, Associate Professor of the Department of Native Studies at the University of Alberta, and also a leading expert on the use of DNA testing within First Nation communities. We also have an interview with Chantelle Delaki, one of the directors of sustainability on the Arts Student Body Council. And finally, we have one interview with Jared McKediak, UMFM station manager, and I guess technically my boss as well. With that being said, let's get to it. With voters set to hit the polls Wednesday to fill their ballots for the upcoming municipal election, one of the most debated topics is whether to open the Portage and Main intersection to pedestrians. The issue has been put to a referendum question on the ballot. This past Saturday saw a campaign to persuade voters to vote open. At 201 Portage Avenue, Open Fest was the result of a collaboration between Winnipeg musicians and key speakers, including Winnipeg's poet laureate Di Brandt, architect and Winnipeg Free Press columnist Brent Bellamy, Joe Cornelson from Functional Transit, and City Councilor Jenny Grabassi. Patrons attending Open Fest could hear musical performances and speeches given by select speakers throughout the day. Our arts and culture editor, Braden Purgis, went down to speak with Andrew Swanson, Open Fest co-organizer, and a couple members from Royal Canoe, the headliner at Open Fest. All three spoke on why they believe Portage and Maine should be open. Absolutely. I mean, transportation um, uh, is already a third of greenhouse gases in Manitoba. Um, and um, a big percentage of those come from people driving alone. Um, and the interesting thing, first of all, is that most people don't want to be doing that. Yeah. They would rather not. They'd, the vast majority of people would rather ride a bicycle in a bike lane if they could, if they had one. Um, the vast majority of people would like to live closer to where they work. Um, so this is all about that. I mean, uh, there's some myths out there, like you know, for example, that uh, first of all, that this is going to cause traffic problems. This is a traffic solution, and um, uh, that's not how that works. It works at a high level where you're certain percentages of people are deciding whether they're going to drive their car everywhere or not and um, this, this changes that in a few really important ways the first one is that Winnipeg 20 years from now if we open Portage and Maine we'll have a lot more businesses um, and apartment buildings right near this intersection and because it's so close to the intersection it generates taxes and ends up giving us money that we can put into all kinds of things whether it's changing all our lights out to LED whether it's doing our buildings so that they're not um, uh, just wasting heat into the atmosphere uh, all that stuff takes money and energy so you got to look for efficiencies and one of the most efficient things you can do is walking and then also I think as far as safety goes I think it's much more important to focus on the safety of women walking downtown at night feeling safe they can cross the street no they don't want to go underground they don't they, they want to be able to say I'm going to go from A to point B and be able to do that unhindered by these stupid regulations and I know there's a lot of people definitely know people who've had close encounters, who've had hostile encounters on their way down through those tunnels late at night. We just need to find better solutions. And since we're a city that's starting to pride itself on developing uh, infrastructure for active transportation, we need to continue to put our money where our mouth is and and foster like a city and a, a system that is built for just that. After U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren released DNA test results apparently confirming her indigenous heritage, 
the question of how one is identified as indigenous was brought into the limelight. Often the subject of Trumpian taunts for an alleged Cherokee descent, the test results corroborated, though to a minute extent, her partly indigenous ancestry. Kim Tallbear, Associate Professor of Native Studies at the University of Alberta and a leading expert on the use of DNA testing within First Nation communities, has been very critical of Warren since the release. Tallbear is a member of the Sisseton, Wapaton, Oyate in South Dakota and a descendant of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma. Our arts and culture reporter, Amin Montaziri, spoke with Kim to talk about, among other things, the subject of DNA testing for Indigenous ancestry and how the discussion around it is getting more attention, her research on Indigenous DNA from which she produced a book titled Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging and the False Promise of Genetic Science, her work in the Indigenous Science, Technology and Society, or Indigenous SDS, an international research and teaching hub based in the University of Alberta, and the use of social media by the Indigenous community across the world for activism and academic discussion. Yeah, it's, it's a big topic right now because what's happened is you've got some of these groups calling themselves Métis who have a history of being involved in white supremacist groups, and they're also attempting to claim to be Indigenous so they can get... Uh, um, exemption from taxation. They're making these cards that look like Indian status cards, but they're not. Mm. So kind of breaking federal law, right? Um, and uh, trying to get like hunting rights. So it, it's, and they're using DNA testing too in some cases. So it's, yeah, it's very, very similar to the kinds of uh, fraudulent claims to be Cherokee. And when I say fraudulent, in the U.S. actually, I think a lot of the people that claim to be Cherokee don't they're not, I think, being willingly deceitful. I think they really believe. But I was just talking to a Cherokee genealogist today, and she said, yeah, I hardly do any Cherokee genealogy because all the people that come to me, there's no Cherokee person in their background. So I end up doing genealogies for a bunch of white people who are not actually Cherokee. But that's how pervasive that myth is in the U.S., especially in the South and the East Coast. Everybody thinks they've got a Cherokee ancestor. Mm. And it's a little bit like what's going on in Quebec. A lot of people would you know say I have an indigenous ancestor, which some many people do, right? That's the history. But if you've got to go back to the 17th century to find one indigenous ancestor, and basically all of your ancestors and the descendants from those people have been living as white people for 300 and some years, maybe you're white. <laughs> so anyway, and not having they don't have good they don't have good relations with with actual indigenous communities. So yeah, this is a topic that's really heated up in in Quebec and. Are some of our academics who are writing about it have really gotten pushback? They've got hate mail. They've been um, had the these these fake Métis groups contact um, their universities mm -hmm. and accuse them of hate speech for writing articles that are looking at their their claims. I mean, I think because I've been doing so many interviews about Elizabeth Warren's DNA test, and that's saying a lot about the U.S. And I can talk a little bit about Canada. I think there are a lot of overlaps between the role of Indigenous people in these two countries, but there are some big differences too. Um, what I've been seeing in the U.S. is just the pervasive erasure or in making invisible of Indigenous peoples in our histories. There are the Indigenous people are not on the national radar and in the national news conversations nearly to the degree they are in Canada. Mm. For example, we will never see something like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the U.S. That mm. will never happen. Uh, we're only about 1% of the population down there. This, the census says more, but that's a problematic data gather, gathering set. Um, so I think in the U.S. it's definitely erasure and being made invisible. Where it is, does have some things in common with Canada, I grew up in rural South Dakota. And in South Dakota, I always say that it's not a black and white race line like it is in much of the, the U.S. It's a red-white race line. Mm -hmm. And so if you are in what we call Indian country, so any of the reservation areas, say Montana, South North Dakota, Arizona, New Mexico, where Native people are a large invisible presence, you will see the same kinds of racism towards them, disproportionate incarceration, police profiling, poverty, you know, all that kind of thing. 
But in most of the U.S., you don't have native populations to quite the same degree. So where I grew up, it is a little bit like the prairie provinces in Canada, right? Uh, I do see more of what I would call a red-white racial line in more of Canada. Although, of course, the farther east you go, I've also heard Indigenous people say in, in Quebec and Ontario, there's a little bit more invisibilization of Indigenous people than there is in, say, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. Mm. So I think it's it's really going between the, the erasure and then the explicit forms of racism. And so that's what I really pay attention to, those implicit forms of racism and those explicit forms of racism. So the explicit forms are things like violence towards Indigenous women and this epidemic rate of missing and murdered Indigenous women. And that's true with your research as well, like uh, identities, Indigenous identities and sexual orientations? Right. I don't work on missing and murdered Indigenous women, but that's an example, right, right of the kind of explicit forms of racism or the disproportionate incarceration of Indigenous people, mm -hmm. right? Police profiling. Um, the, you know, calling indigenous people uh, racial epithets. You know, you'll see, you'll see and hear about that, the stuff that's gone on in Thunder Bay, right? The throwing of, of dangerous items from cars at indigenous people and hurting them. Um, implicit forms of racism are things like mascots or um, this, the, this claiming uh, to be indigenous based on a purported ancestor 400 years ago by white people. You're seeing this in the eastern provinces, Métis, these fraudulent Métis groups doing that. So whether it's this sort of um, squashing of indigenous rights or whether it is appropriating indigenous representations and identities, this is all about maintaining a, a white supremacist state. And so what I often hear people say, like if, if I'm critical of the mascots, and my, my, uh, I know I have a lot of activists and artist friends in the U.S. who are really critical of the Redskins mascot, you'll often hear people say, oh, big deal, that's not important. Don't you natives have more important things to worry about, like your low educational attainment and violence in your communities? But the thing is, all of these forms of racism, whether they're implicit or explicit, are connected. You know, it's so I don't view them as some issues as more important to the other. I look at this whole connected web of issues. So the book that I wrote looks at the history of um, physical anthropology, which today is often called biological anthropology. And it started out being the study of um, Native American bones. And so the School of American Anthropology is built on the study of Native American bones, and this is emerging at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. I go from there and then I look at the introduction of genetic techniques in the 20th century to study Native American DNA. So our bodies are still considered the natural resources upon which research can be done, mm. but it changes from bones to blood to DNA. Um, and then I look at the commercialization of that research in DNA testing companies, and those are the companies that, for example, are doing the uh, DNA test for Elizabeth Warren right now. I look at uh, the way that indigenous peoples have pushed back against genetic research and tried to get more authority, um, ownership authority over DNA samples and bones. I look at the repatriation of bones in there. Um, and then I look, the end of that book is looking at indigenous efforts to govern through science. So I go from, from looking at how indigenous peoples have pushed back and said, no, that science is colonial to how can we use science towards self-determination? And that's what that, that book, Native American DNA, is about. Mm -hmm. When I um, started researching the Native American DNA book when I was a PhD student uh, back in 2001, 2002, there was nobody that I know of that was indigenous that was working in the field of science and technology studies. Mm. Um, and certainly in science and technology studies, no one was thinking about indigenous knowledge as a form of science. There, it's really kind of left out. There's one feminist philosopher of science, Sandra Harding, who 
who has kind of tried to push indigenous knowledge as a form of science and science studies, but basically there was no one, and she's a mentor of mine. Um, now, I there are uh, young indigenous scholars, they're all younger than me, who are working, there's Jessica Kolopenik at U of A, who's writing on DNA and the um, missing persons uh, forensic database that they're starting in Canada, and she's looking at missing and murdered indigenous women. There is Marissa Duarte down in Arizona, who wrote a book called Network Sovereignty about the internet in Indian country. Uh, there are young scholars popping up all over the place, taking up different scientific issues as they intersect with indigenous cultures and governance. And so we decided to start this kind of virtual network or virtual lab uh, called Indigenous STS. And then I was just asked to come down and um, they're also thinking about this in Australia. I got sick and couldn't go, but um, they, they're talking about Indigenous STS down there. And they told me when I was uh, Skyping with them to organize the talk, they said, you actually in Canada, all of you are leading the way, we're looking to you. I'm like, really? I didn't know it. Well, great. Because the other thing they said is we bring in queer theory. Uh, so for when, when we're doing Indigenous STS, it's all Indigenous women, uh, a, a lot of women who are queer or two-spirit. And so one of the things that we're looking at is the way in which queer people's critiques of science have been very similar to Indigenous people's critiques of science. Both kinds of people have been, have been looked upon as these kind of deviant bodies, right? Deviant from the norm, deviant what should be, and we've both been the objects of research. But deviant as in... From what perspective? Deviant from that, well, because the scientific perspective is a white Western masculinist perspective. Mm. They, so there's a whole body of theory that looks at what, what gets called objectivity in science is really masculinist objectivity. And so I work with a theory called feminist objectivity. That's a very different definition of objectivity. Mm. So, um, based, but, but in Canada, we're, it's indigenous STS, but it's also queer STS. And those two things are really entangled together. And we're working with scholars in New Zealand and Australia um, and, and in the U.S. a little bit, too, to kind of set up this kind of global network. And we had a symposium in June in the University of Alberta mm. on Indigenous STS. So, yeah, so it's a burgeoning field. It's great. Mm. I've got students all over the world that I'm not officially working with. That's great. Yeah, it is great. It is great. Yeah, because they're not all going to come to Alberta, right? I mean, I have students contact me all the time. Or Winnipeg. And, yeah, yeah, they're, you know, and that's fine. I mean, um, Indigenous people especially want to kind of stay where their peoples are quite often. And so we've got to figure out a way to tie us together without making people relocate. Mm. So th that's how indigenous scholars can be a little bit different than other scholars. They really are tied to place and they're tied to those communities. And so we've tried to poach people from uni University of Manitoba and they're like, I got to stay in Winnipeg because I've got, this is where my network is, right? Yeah. Well, and indigenous people are big on social media. I mean, we've got native Twitter. We've got, you know, there's, they sell t-shirts at powwows that say FBI, Facebook Indian. Like it's, we're really on social media. And I think a lot of it is we've got these net national networks anywhere way through conferences and the powwow circuit and cultural events. Um, so it, it makes sense when social media came along that we just kind of picked up those, uh, those networks really easy and we use them for activism. I mean, I Don't Know More was a great example of how social media serves indigenous activism, right? Mm. Yeah. And, it's, and for academics as well. And I make a lot of um, great contacts on Twitter. So I've actually, you know, now, like I had never met Rick until um, he came to University of Alberta a few weeks ago and did a live taping there. But I've been working with him on this podcast for over a year now. Mm. And there's and Tim Fontaine, you too, right, who's going to be here tonight. I know all these Native people all over the country that I haven't even met, but I feel like I know them because I know them through social media. Mm. And, yeah, it's a great network.
Last week, we discussed on the show initiatives being taken by the University of Manitoba's Office of Sustainability through its student volunteers. The Arts Student Body Council has also been doing its part, and on October 15th, they began their composting program. The initiative has taken place thanks to the work of Chantal Delaki, one of the directors of sustainability on the Arts Student Body Council. Our news reporter, Ty Brass, sat down for a quick chat to talk with Chantel about how this project came to be, what she hopes will come out of the project, as well as some information about how students from the arts faculty, as well as from other faculties, can get involved with a similar sort of project that they can take on. For those who are interested, you can contact Chantel at asbcsustainability at gmail.com. That's asbcsustainability at gmail.com. There was a bit of struggle um, in the beginning with just like, the number of bins that people wanted to have, like they were worried about. There's a lot of um, concern from maintenance and physical plant about things like fruit flies and smell and animals and those types of things. So it took a lot of like diligent planning to show them that I had a step-by-step way to deal with these issues so that they wouldn't have to because we don't want to put extra work on the maintenance staff um, for this type of thing. It's like entirely student run with like student volunteers. And then the other kind of issue was um, when I had to meet with sustainability and purchasing. Um, there was just like a lot of like liability issues like compost when I had to take a safety course um, in order to be able to pick up the compost. Just a lot of like policy things that you know as a student you're not really aware of until you start getting involved in the process and realizing how many steps there are to uh, actually like uh, start a student-led initiative. Um, but I think that the fact that I kind of pushed for it helped because now purchasing they want and legal they want to have like a template contract set up for student initiatives which didn't exist before. But then I guess. When I was pushing for it, they saw that there was a need for this and they want to encourage more student involvement. Um, but what's really exciting is like a couple weeks ago, someone from the engineering faculty contacted me um, because they're trying to get some composting in their faculty as well. So, I mean, the, the project just started for us, like just like yesterday was when we got the bin. So um, we're going to kind of see how it goes and then I'm going to keep in contact with them and then eventually we want to kind of collaborate and maybe split the cost of the bin or they can get their own depending on the volume. But it was actually really exciting to have another student group that wanted to join us like right away, which was really encouraging. So that's what we were hoping for is like long term we want um, other student groups to kind of take the initiative to get it started so we can have it across campus. And then from there, hopefully the administration will see that it's something that that's really important to students here. So there are five in um, the Faculty of Arts. So in the tier is the Sir and Fletcher Argy buildings. Um, so we tried to put them in areas of like higher traffic and also where they're recycling in garbage bins already, just so that there's to reduce the amount of contamination we're going to get. Um, yeah, so that there's an option between garbage recycling and mm-hmm. compost. Like people had tried to put this project in place previously. Like it's been a couple of years that sustainability has wanted to have composting on campus. Um, I I think it was just like finding the right company, finding the right system, finding the right contracts so that like there are no liability issues. Because that was a big one was that they didn't want the Art Student Body Council itself to be liable if anything were to go wrong. um, Because then we would be, well we'd be liable and then we could get sued. Um, So then they did the contract through the U of M. So that was like one of the kind of like more difficult points of discussion. But I think the fact that it's a student-led program is actually really advantageous because like we can regulate it through volunteers, get students involved, 
um, and actually like caring about waste diversion, um, especially because such a large volume of it on campus goes just to landfills. As long as we continuously like keep the bins very clean, empty them out, um, I have volunteers scheduled every evening to at least check on them or empty them if needed or and clean them. So we're hoping that's not going to be an issue, especially now the season's kind of dying up for blue flies, so that's really good. So it's all volunteers? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, they're um, sustainability ambassadors with the Office of Sustainability. Um, so they do get co-curricular recognition on their transcript for their volunteer hours. Um, so if you wanted to mention that, if other students wanted to volunteer, that would be amazing. There was a bit of uh, hesitance with just, we originally wanted to start with nine compost bins around Faculty of Arts. We, got, we reduced it to five just because there was, um, just because of cost for cost reasons. But otherwise, I mean, it's a, I think it's a really great investment for the Arts Student Body Council. We're estimating for like, we're gonna do like an eight month pilot project kind of thing. And like the estimated cost is like max 1800, like 15 to $1,800. So it's not like a huge cost when you break it down. It's just like a lot of work to get the system going and to maintain the system. Um, when you look at what can be composted, a lot of things you wouldn't expect, like coffee grounds, tea bags, um, paper towel, obviously like organics like fruit, vegetable cores, I guess, or peels. You can also do meat in, I, would, I don't know, I'm a vegan, so I'm not super into that, but that can also be composted. But um, we do get like some contamination between, like you can't compost things like Obviously, like plastic is not compostable. Paper bags, things that can be recycled, are not compostable. Um, sometimes there's some confusion with that. If students want to help with this at all, what should they do? Um, first step would be knowing what's compostable and what isn't. That would be really helpful for us, just uh, to reduce contamination. Another thing would be if, in their faculty, if they're really passionate about this and they want to get something started, like to contact me to see how, if they need some help, like guidance on how to do it. Um, and if they want to directly volunteer with, with my program, like they could email, I have an email ASPC sustainability at Gmail, so they could, they could contact me for that. For those who listened last week, you were aware that it was our Pledgerama episode. Pledgerama is a week at UMFM where those who would like to show their support to a certain show on UMFM, or to UMFM in general, can make a donation to help with the costs of running the station as well as with the implementation of projects that UMFM sets as goals. Our news reporter, Shauna Matthews, spoke with station manager of UMFM and long-suffering fan of Cleveland's baseball team, Jared McKediak, to talk more about Pledgerama, including how it has turned out since starting seven years ago, the effort put in by the entirety of staff and volunteers, as well as potential future initiatives. So every year we try and pick one or two projects that we think could uh, not only benefit the radio station, but benefit our listener base as well. And so uh, this year's two goals, if we were to meet our goal, uh, or sorry, our two projects, if we were to meet our goal, uh, the first is that we want to digitize our music library. And then the second is that we want to look at expanding our coverage on campus through uh, the installation of, hopefully, depending on, on how far we get, about 25 to 30 uh, listening hotspots around campus. Looking at Fletcher Argue and and like arts is mm -hmm. is a place that's always been generally very supportive for us. And then uh, the, you know science we've got a we've got one in the tunnel to science, but maybe somewhere 
like we'd like to look at the lounges and we'd okay. like to look at but then um we'd also like to look at putting some some coverage up on the Bannatine campus as well because it's downtown it's actually closer to where i live and uh, I think that Bannatine sometimes gets forgotten about a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Our goal is always to get working on this stuff. If we meet our goal during Pledgerama, then we want to go to work because we want to accomplish and complete those projects before the next pledge drive. Yeah. Mostly because we we feel it's super important to demonstrate to the people who are donating to us that their money is actually being put to good use. And we want them to see some sort of a value for it. UMFM is predominantly volunteer run. We've got two full-time staff and we've got two part-time staff. And then we've got about 125 volunteers. You know, some are more active than others. Yeah. But um, for the most part, it is uh, volunteers who are uh, manning the phones, uh, volunteers who who are working... Like we did a kickoff event at the West End, so we had volunteers running the merchandise table there, taking donations, working the door. Um, you know, hosts are in charge of obviously um, trying to obtain their own donations, but then there we have a lot of people who are interested in doing like extended programming. So we had um, a couple of hosts who normally do a show during the day sort of teaming up to do like an overnight like a late night thing where they ran from like midnight until three people taking morning shifts because what we do is we bump a lot of our syndicated programming because we want live people in the booth we want live people here right so we started seven years ago uh our first uh goal was twenty thousand dollars and so Every year, I'm super stoked to say that we've we've met and exceeded our goal. So seven years running, and you know we're on track to hit our highest total ever this year. You know we're just shy of about forty thousand oh, wow. dollars. Last year we hit about forty one when everything was said and done. And I mean it's just I'm I'm super happy with where we are now right mm-hmm. um but just based on how things have gone in the last couple of years you know we're usually still seeing donations two or three years or two or three uh weeks sorry after the fact you know oh, people okay. are like oh hey i was away um during the pledge drive can i still donate and it's just like well yeah yeah you can still donate of course so i think that if we're raising more money then of course the scope of project is gonna is gonna increase right a big thing with us is that we've never wanted to ask for more than we need or take more than than we need and it's also super important for us to do things that are i guess essential or important to the greater good here with the money you know like we're not taking the money and increasing salaries right yeah it's not really what we're about and so you know like we're also trying to do interesting things here that we can pass on to people in the community right so you know i want to start because we've we've raised funds and we've done things in our live band room right i want to start working with some 
groups in the city like Girls Rock Winnipeg and inviting participants of, of that program to come down here and you know use a studio or record um, you know we're doing you know a couple years ago we did some of the fundraising we did was to raise money to um, undertake a podcast uh, or underca- undertake a podcast project about reconciliation so we're getting ready to launch that and it's allowed us to work with a bunch of different indigenous um, organizations in the city and so you know as we're working with them we're passing on some of the goodwill and we're making donations to their organizations as well so yeah I mean it's super awesome that uh that the city of Winnipeg and sort of listeners not only across the province but you know we have people across the world who donate um it means a lot I know to me to the staff to the volunteers that people believe enough in what we do to give money towards it right Mm -hmm. it's it's a pretty good feeling um you know people talk about how radio isn't really a viable medium anymore and you know obviously I'm biased but I disagree I disagree with that and you know seeing the number of donations go up every year seeing the number of donors go up every year seeing the response being what it is tells me that there are still people out there who embrace the medium who like radio who like alternative media who who don't want to live within normal sort of conventions right and value what we do and so that's tells me that we're kind of we're on the right track and we're doing the right thing And that should do it for today's episode of Tobin Tuesdays brought to you by the Manitoban here on 101.5 UMFM. Once again, the interviews you heard today were provided by Braden Purgis, Amin Montaziri, Ty Brass, and Shauna Matthews. The intro and transition music you heard today were produced by Kenny Ingram, and the entire episode was produced and hosted by me, Joe Gonzalez. If you are unable to listen to our show at our normal airtime from 11.30am to noon on Tuesdays, you're able to listen to this episode as well as past episodes that have aired on our show page at umfm.com. You can go to umfm.com, go to program directory, and find our show there in the Tuesday slot. The full link to our show page is also umfm.com forward slash programming forward slash shows forward slash Tobin dash news dash desk. On behalf of the Manitoban, we thank you for listening and we hope you'll tune in next week. See you later.